you know, they are still literally applying the same principles that they've applied like for the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years. So imagine trying to bring it, like change that tide. I mean, it's really, really hard. We've tried to do and where we've had success is like incremental change management. Like let's not move all the cheese at once. Like start with the kits, right? It's like, hey, you know, your field workers are currently dropping this off. What if we can drive down your costs by 50%, get you better data visibility, better reporting through this way of doing it and see how it goes. And oh my gosh, now 120 Water is sending hundreds of thousands of kids nationwide, but literally five years, that was just a concept. At the end of the day, someone has to buy your product. And if your product is five steps ahead from what they can actually buy now, unfortunately, you can have a great vision, but no product market fit. There are a lot of things in our product roadmap that are like super awesome and cool, but our customers just wouldn't value that right now because we are literally taking data from paper and putting it into the cloud, Like, but meeting the market where they are and then knowing where we can take them through more innovation. Welcome to Mission First, the podcast to learn from successful entrepreneurs changing the world for the better. Are you in the first three years of your company? And do you want to save time by avoiding making the same mistakes that lots of entrepreneurs have already done? Then make sure to follow this podcast because you are going to get actionable strategies coming directly from those who have found product market fit and are scaling up fast with their for-profit companies or their NGOs. Think about it as a masterclass about product innovation, business models, leadership and growth marketing. Bonjour, bonjour, I am Gilles Toussaint, I help entrepreneurs have a bigger impact with this podcast, and I also help mission-driven companies increase their revenue more efficiently with growth marketing and my company, GT Impact. What is it like to start from scratch in an industry you know nothing about? This is what Megan Glover did back in 2016 when she started 120 Water. Today, 120 Water has grown to 75 full-time employees, more than 200 customers, and a seven-digit revenue. They are paving the way for the water industry, moving it from paper into the cloud. They offer digital solutions to water professionals, helping them protect public health way more efficiently. Megan spent 10 years in marketing before deciding to pursue water as her next career move. And it was unnatural to talk about how to use your experience and a different perspective to innovate in a new industry and find purpose. Megan shares her angle on how to find mentors, apply proven concept and solution to your business. Keep your customers at the center of your strategy even as you scale. Don't let hearing no discourage you. Learn to let go. Hire the right people. Build a brand your customers would love to buy. Are you ready to dive in the water? Then let's dive in together. Megan, thank you very much for being here today. How are you? Oh, I'm wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much too. Thank you for sharing your time with us. Tell me a little bit. Do I pronounce the name of the company correctly, by the way? Uh, yes, well, 120 Water. Oh, 120 Water. <laughs> That's nicer like that. Indeed. So can you tell me a bit, what's your mission with 120 Water? Yes, absolutely. So our mission, why we get up every single day working hard and doing what we do is actually to provide uh, digital water solutions for water professionals to use to execute programs to protect our public health. And really, we got our core and our core solutions are really around lead and drinking water and ensuring that regulators in the U.S. 
water systems and facilities have the right digital tools that they need to execute these programs to get lead out of the drinking water. Okay, so you have a lot of key issues that you are mentioning here. You know, so testing and different issues you are solving with your digital products. What are the top key issues you are solving and who are exactly the clients? I guess you have a few different types of clients. So the key issues we are solving are really macro issues that are facing the water industry in the U.S. and actually, you know, globally and beyond, and that is more regulation. You know, I founded the company right in the height of Flint, Michigan, and I'm sure we'll get into that, but um, as a better way to test water at the tap. And um, as a result of Flint and other kind of water quality crises in the U.S., we're seeing a lot more stringent regulation of testing around the tap water. And so what our solution does, the software the kits, and then we have services is really to help those charged with either executing the regulations or boots on the ground actually complying with those regulations. They use our platform as an end-to-end solution to manage the data, do the testing, get the data back into the platform, and do the very, very important reporting and communications to stakeholders. So regulators, uh, citizens, as well as other internal operators and operating officials within the water system. So we are really an end-to-end platform that exists to help them meet compliance, run their infrastructure programs. So that's another solution in terms of identifying where lead pipes are, both on the public and the private side, so that they can plan their capital projects to actually get the lead out of the ground as well. And to do that way more efficiently than they were doing in the past, because they were seeing on your website the examples of Pittsburgh Water and Sewer Authority who managed to reduce, that you managed to reduce with your product, the customer request fulfillment from four months to 14 days. That's a pretty mm. fantastic result. Yes, nothing's perfect, but we really, I will say, kind of perfected that last mile of distribution when it comes to water testing and helping utilities really do this at scale, as opposed to how they've been thinking about it previously, which is I'm just going to put a human being on the project. I'm going to either put a human being to go dig a hole and identify a material type or put a bottle in a paper bag and drive 30 miles to drop that off at someone's doorstep. We've really kind of reverse engineered how would we solve that last mile problem first and then built solutions to help them execute that. Before we dig into the advice you sent me, I'd like to talk a little bit about your background, basically how 120 Water started, because you were in marketing before, and as I explained in the introduction, had no experience with the water industry. So what are the first steps in a nutshell? How do you go from this idea, what were you doing, to the company and corporations? So my background, I had spent over a decade in marketing, really building out go-to-market functions for business-to-business software-as-a-service platforms. And they did that across a lot of different industries. So CRM, marketing, retail, ed tech, healthcare, and an earlier stage, the better. So from uh, pre-funding to Series A, all the way through acquisition to private equity or big data companies like Oracle, Salesforce, et cetera. And so I had really seen the best of breed of cloud platforms mature over the last 10 years. And, you know, I think how I started 120 Water was actually as a um, an unsatisfied customer of water. Again, you know, seeing all of the pictures of Flint, Michigan and where I live is not that far from Flint. 
I mean, it's literally, you know, a three to four hour drive. I live in Indiana, but it's not that far from Michigan. And so I remember talking to my business partner at the time and saying, you know, I mean, how could this be happening in the United States of America? I'd never even thought that water quality is going to be an issue with such a sophisticated infrastructure that we have. And so I wanted to test my water. So I called my water company and they said, we don't provide testing. Here's our consumer confidence report. The water's okay to drink. And I said, well, thanks for this piece of paper, but I'd really like to test my water. And so then they referred me to a lab and they didn't really do consumer one-off testing. They did industrial panels, if you will, of $3,000. And so from idea to concept, I said, well, it's really silly when this day and age I can get my DNA tested through 23andMe. I can get dog treats delivered, you know, to my doorstep through BarkBox and Chewy and others. Uh, Everlywell, I mean, all of these like you know, clinical box subscriptions show up at your doorstep. Why can't I get my water tested? So literally, we reverse engineered the 23andMe business model. And within six weeks, we were able to bring our first series of kits to life using that model and that distribution nationwide environmental labs. And that's literally how 120 Water was birthed. We didn't have a business plan. It wasn't like on year three, we're going to pivot to Gov. And on year four, we're going to pivot to water systems. It really was birthed out of, gosh darn it, I want to test my water. These other companies have figured out how to do it for other things. Let's figure out how to do it for water. And that's literally, I think that's the need and want for that solution is really what drove the formation of the company. That's really interesting to hear because... As you mentioned in that story, we're going to talk to it in your advice, so let's not spoil it right now, but you started with a, a pain on the B2C side, and that led you to start this project. One more thing before we dig into your advice. If you think about everything you've been doing since five years now, what has been the hardest? I think the hardest for me personally, and I'm sure it's different depending on background and whatnot, it's, you know, every... Every stage of the business is different from the last, and it literally is a new muscle memory that has to be created. And so I think for me, it's, you know, going from zero to a million, going from a million to three, three. Those have very different characteristics and DNA. And in every step of the way, I'm always like, how do you maintain that core foundational structure? Literally, when we were stuffing bottles on my dining room table, like, how do we not let go of that passion, that innovation and excitement? while we continue to grow and actually go from do we have product market fit to, oh, actually now I need to be running a very organizationally sound business. So for me, it's been, I think that one of the hardest is making sure that we are prepared for the next leg of our journey every step of the way while maintaining, like, we are very proud of our founding story. We are very proud of our innovation and scrappiness. So how do you maintain that while also actually growing and building a multi-million dollar business. This is a perfect transition to one of the points you mentioned in the advice you sent, saying that you know scaling is hard, that the founding team may not be your Series A team, uh, and so on and so forth. So can you iterate a bit more ab about this? I remember an investor telling me that early on when they wrote their first check. And it, I mean, early on, meaning I think they wrote me a $10,000 check when we had, you know, 20,000 in the bank. And because they, when you raise money, they have you bring in your core members of your team and, you know, they want to see everybody and they want to see who they're investing in. And I remember someone saying, you know, it's going to get hard because, you know, some of these people in the room may not be there. And that may be one of the, the things you just need to understand as you grow and scale this business. And it didn't click to me because at the time I'm like, 
these are my ride or dies, right? Like we're in this, we're, we're putting our hearts and souls into building this business at an early stage. But by gosh, you know, I think once you start to, you have a product and now you have to scale that product. And a lot of that comes with process and repeatability. And now you have to learn how to be a manager. Like sometimes those skills don't click with maybe early folks who just want to get in the trenches and do, and they don't really want to document process and figure out team building and org structure. So yeah, I think one of those lessons learned and to pay it forwards is you may have an awesome founding team that goes with you from start to finish and can fill all the jobs and roles needed. But we certainly had to, again, we've had to level up certain key talent every bit of the way. And again, that that's kind of been a learning experience, but also eyes wide open, knowing that, that at some point in time, you know, you have to figure out what's the right team for the right stage of your business. It means in that case, you probably like were in this case where you had some persons who were the right fit at the beginning, but not the right fit for the next part. Do you have some examples of how you handle that situation with these persons? Because agreeing to terminate a contract of someone or stepping down as a co-founder to finding a new role of that person. So like, do you have an example of how you handled that as a CEO? I do. Yeah, I think um, I have some examples and then what I would do differently next time. But I think some examples is, you know, people first are people are everything. And so we certainly have along the way, once someone maybe is not their skill set, they've outgrown the role they're in. We always try to find a better role for them. So we have, there are a number of employees, three, four, and five that are still here and they've worn five different hats, but that's what we need them to do because they have such great institutional knowledge about the product, our customers, like we can just, you know, put them places to be most successful. And that may not be in the C-suite or that may not be in the VP spot, but they play really critical Jack or Jill of all trade roles um, as needed across the organization. So when possible, we've just tried to, you know, maintain that that integrity there. And then for the folks that have transitioned out of the business, I think I think when you're starting a business, you're just going, 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 and you're not thinking so much about the the T's and C's. But what I would have done differently is probably set better milestone expectations for those that have had to transition out of the business, right? Rather than just say, this is yours and let's grow this together. It's let's define yours, right? And let's define like when we accomplish this, you know, you get X and then we're going to grow and you're going to get, you know, Y. Um, because I think sometimes when we brought people on without those expectations, the only place to go is someplace else. And, and we've helped, you know, we've mutually come to that, you know, uh, conclusion together. And everyone always ends up better than they were before. But I do think that's a lesson learned is making sure when you bring in those key employees, it's really having a, a future looking discussion about where they where do they want to be professionally and being very eyes wide open and say, here's where we think you can go here or if it's not here, where? That's a very good strategy. Not easy to do all the time, but it's actually great to hear that you managed to, to deal with it like that. Let's go to the first advice you sent me on the topic we, we decided to focus on was how to use your experience in a different perspective to help innovate in a new industry, plus how to find purpose. And you told me the entrepreneurial journey is hard enough. Be sure to surround yourself with mentors and advisors that will provide honest feedback and help you succeed. Can you iterate a bit on that? Yeah, I just again to reiterate, I do think the entrepreneurial journey, especially as a founder and, and a CEO, can be lonely and is a, is a roller coaster. And hopefully, you have more ups than downs. But what I have found is really understanding who those people. You know, it, it's come with lessons learned. I've had people that I've 
thought were mentors where I could be very candid and raw and help me solve this problem. And it's flipped on me. It's kind of turned into a, well, you should be able to solve that problem, right? Your CEO. But really having, whether that's in a formal engagement through an executive coach or informally just through those mentor circles, I, I don't think I could have gotten where I am without having those people that I can just call and say, this is a problem. I don't know how to fix it. And I wish I could bring like three solutions to the table, but I just need to talk, you know, with someone about that. So I'm a big fan of making sure you know who those people are, because a lot of times those people aren't within your organization or you don't want to bring your closest peers into some of those conversations, not because they're not uh, capable of working through it with you, but um, just, you know, time and place and and you don't want to air certain things. So anyway, I just, I think it's really important that founders vet and understand who they can, who those people are and rely on those people and never feel embarrassed or ashamed or asking for a minute of their time. Like, honestly, like I know everyone's busy, but not be ashamed for asking for someone's time that, to give advice. And then I think the other part of that is as we've grown and taken on a board, making sure you know who you're bringing on to that board and how exactly they're going to contribute. And at the end of the day, that they are there to make your life easier, better, and the business better. And just, if I had to do it over again, I'd be a lot more bullish and um, about who I would bring on to the board and make sure that I know that um, they're working for me. (laughs) What leverage do you have on how to decide who is on the board and when? That's a great question. Oftentimes, especially as you're getting into Series A and more capital out of the business, I would say you don't have a lot of say in who is on the board. But in terms of leverage, founders and the management team have all of the leverage, right? Because day in, day out, they are the ones performing the work that are maximizing the value for the business. So, you know, I think it's just um, I'm lucky that I have a very candid, awesome board that wants to help our team. And so we can be very candid and direct. And I know that they represent different shareholder classes, but at the end of the day, they're there to help us make the business better. And so I think the leverage is, again, just clear expectation setting. Like, I know that you have a seat on this board, but this is what I'm looking for from you. And you control the meeting agenda, right? You control the meeting cadence. Understanding that you do have all of the leverage and can be very um, prescriptive upfront about what you want to get from the board from an operating perspective, if that makes sense. That makes total sense. Talking about like finding these mentors and advisors, of course, investors and board members are like the same case for everyone. In fact, all entrepreneurs have them. But when it comes to finding other mentors, and you mentioned some circle of mentors, do you have some references on how to find these circle of mentors or where could people can basically ask for mentors? Because it's not like if I'm building a car company tomorrow, I can call Elon Musk and say, hey, do you want to be my mentor? Right. And well, and I th- also... I mean, that'd be great. I, I, that would be phenomenal if he had an open line, right? Um, Twitter would be a good one, I think. Siri, not, Jack but, Dorsey? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, there, there are so many that I would just love to pick up the phone. Um, you know, I... I th- I also think that mentors can be peers, too. They don't also have to be accomplished. You know, I guess for me personally, I I have a couple that I've been fortunate, you know, along my 10-year journey prior to starting 120, I worked under a lot of incredible founders and CEOs. So I've kind of picked up various mentors along the way, just who I've worked with. And I know I have a very good working relationship. And so I know that I could call on this person any day of the week to talk 
customer success, this person to talk product, this person to talk business. So I think, you know, for me, it's been a very organic picking up people that I've respected and have grown to trust along the way. I think from a formal mentorship perspective, I don't know, because again, for me, it's been such an organic. I've tried to do the executive coaching, you know, try to kind of formalize and say, I'm going to make a concerted effort um, and maybe I need to try better. But for me, just the organic surrounding yourself with people you respect and maybe are smarter than you and have done more than you (laughs) or that you just respect their time and opinion has worked. So just I would say eyes wide open and think back to who you've professionally respected across your journey and just keep emailing or keep texting or being very respectful and, you know, can I have 15 minutes of your time? Can I have 10 minutes of your time? Don't be afraid to ask for that time, even if they say they can't give it to you. Yeah, dare to ask. And it's something I think, especially with the peers, as you mentioned, uh, realize as well on my side, usually you feel bad because everybody's busy. I don't know if it's the case from you, but very often I've been really busy. You know, you want to catch up with your ex-colleagues and that you really appreciated in the past. Uh, but you say, I'm going to call her, I'm going to call him. And then that doesn't happen because we are all busy. And I think it's in, in both directions. And sometimes you know that the person could help you, for example, because she's an expert in that. And you kind of feel bad about trying to call her just to ask for a service, uh, even though you would have liked to you know, call her 10 times just to, to check in how everything was going for her or him. And uh, But what I realized is when you dare to do it, most of the time, People are just super happy. And then they're in the same situation than you are. People are just like, oh, yeah, I'm sorry I didn't call you. And I was like, oh, yeah, actually, I'm sorry I didn't call you. But I really like what you said, that you should just dare to call and get in touch with the people, you know, in general. I'm with you, though. There's and I'm very, very guilty of it is that <clears throat> that first call in six months to a year. Hey, I have a business question for you. Hey, how are you, yeah, kid? I yeah, I mean, you know, it's it, by the way. And, and But I do think that's a common ground, right? For people who are in it and in it every day, that's almost an easier way than an out of the blue. Hey, I haven't talked to you in two years, but how are your kids? Yeah, I agree. And then you go to the restaurant or you have a coffee or something, but at least you're, you're happy to take it. As soon as it's genuine, I always say, I don't, I don't feel bad about it as soon as it's genuine. So second advice, think about how other technologies and innovations applied to other sectors and how it can help advance yours. So the water sector is notorious for being antiquated. I hope I say it correctly. And slow to adopt modern technologies. That's what I heard. That's what I heard from Antoine. We thought I had the podcast interview and Don't Waste and Don't Waste Water podcast. And then 120 Water found success, but building simple solutions proven in other industries to address must solve problems. So yes, this is when it comes to probably you explaining us a bit what everything you've learned in marketing and everything in the prior to 120 Water help you in that case. Yeah, I think we have a value, which are right behind me, which is respect the status quo, but push the boundaries. Because I think when you're going in and trying to innovate in established industries, I can't think of one honestly more established than water and honestly one more critical than water because We need water to survive. And unlike power and energy, like we've not found a way to manufacture at scale more water, right? Like, so if you think about like business models of a water system, they are still literally applying the same principles that they've applied like for the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years. So imagine trying to bring it, like change that tide. I mean, it's it's really, really hard. So I think you know, what we've tried to do and where we've had success is like incremental change management. Like, let's not move all the cheese at once. Like, start with the kids, right? It's like, hey, your field workers are currently dropping this off. 
what if we can drive down your costs by 50%, get you better data visibility, better reporting through this way of doing it, and see how it goes. And oh my gosh, now 120 Water is sending hundreds of thousands of kids nationwide, but literally five years, that was just a concept and not a way of doing business in the water industry. But we're not reinventing the wheel. And that's what I always like to say with the water folks is, do you get a package from Amazon, right? Do you ever order anything from Gap? You know, have you ever used TurboTax? I think when you can like bring these familiar concepts and other industries or tools that they may be using in their everyday to how we're trying to apply this to them, it's a lot that the barrier, the barrier to adopt becomes less. So I think that's kind of how we think about it is not only how we market, like how can we assimilate to things that they are used to using in their everyday or kind of other industries, but also how we build, right? Like we're not going to reinvent email marketing in our platform when email marketing already exists. We're just going to integrate with Twilio, right? You know, we're not going to reinvent shipping and logistics. We'll just integrate through API with the logistics platform. So Again, I think it's bringing all of my background, seeing how different technologies can operate and then bringing that into our platform has really helped us scale and broaden the solutions that we're able to bring to market. So not reinventing the wheel, but using what's available and looking at those innovation in different verticals to bring them to innovate here. It's a little bit like going business case by business case as uh, Matthias Josefsson from Shine explained me as well in this podcast that you can have a super big vision, but you have to find one business case at a time to start developing your, your activities. At the end of the day, someone has to buy your product. And if your product is five steps ahead from what they can actually buy now, unfortunately, you can have a great vision, but no product market fit. And you may, I mean, in 10 years, maybe you're sitting back looking and going, yeah, that was my idea 10 years ago, but you have to, yeah. So, I mean, there are a lot of things in our product roadmap that are like super awesome and cool, but our customers just wouldn't value that right now because we are literally taking data from paper and putting it into the cloud. Like that's literally, that's step one for a lot of our customers, just getting the data in a format that we can do something with. And then once we have it, we can do really amazing, insightful things, but meeting the market where they are and then knowing where we can take them through more innovation. If you are busy and might not have the time to listen to this full episode or to all episodes of this podcast, just a little tip. Sign up for my newsletter on gtimpact.com. You will receive the summary of advice from each episode and you will get personal recommendations on which episode you should focus on depending on your current challenges, your industry and your startup stage. The third advice you send me is put your customers at the center of your universe. As an initial outsider to water, I listened to customers. I was in the trenches with customers. I love to hear that from founders. I stalked potential customers only to better understand a day in their shoes. Uh, and when it comes to waving customer feedback, intent and drive into every aspect of your business will help you a better product. I always argue with uh, not argue, but discuss with sometimes my clients about this. That, And I think that's probably one of the key of your success of how you manage to grow so fast is that you listen to your clients the whole time. So can you explain us a bit more about this and especially how do you do that now? Uh, how you, maybe how it has changed from when you were the founding team of a few people and you had to do it to now, how you manage to keep on doing it now? That is a wonderful question. I mean, when you're the founding team 
and let's say less than 20 people or less than 10, I mean, literally, I'm the one listening to customers and creating the personas and I'm doing all of the scoping for the product. Like, this is how Julie is going to use this to accomplish X. Again, you're in the trenches and you know exactly how they, what problem they need to solve and how they would like to use technology and kits to do that. And I think that's what's built trust with our core customer base is honestly like learning and and actually delivering what they want to use to do their jobs more effectively. And again, as we've scaled back to that, what's been the hardest, that's also been the hardest to maintain because you can say that employee 50 loves your customers as much as you know you do but that's not true right i mean you know i think as you scale you know every every employee you bring on is one step removed from like that founding that why you existed in the first place and so what we try to do to get that employee 50 to love the customer as much as employee one or two or three is we actually make sure that our customers have a fireside in every single company meeting we do so we will bring a customer in they will, this is not a commercial. We don't vet only the good, but like we want our team to hear firsthand with the work we're doing, the impact it's making on their life and so that they can try to, again, connect back with the customer. So that's just one example. Other examples are all of our customer-focused product launch webinars are our number one attended events. Like customers love to be a part of the roadmap process. They love to be part of the um, beta process when they get their hands on something. They're like, I like that. I don't like that. We try to weave their feedback in our planning, in our roadmap, and then also just tell as many customer stories as we can, internal team and external. You said something very interesting because I think that lots of companies are doing webinars. Very few webinars are interesting to me. So how do you manage, and you said it is the number one channel that like your clients are attending. So how did you define, how do you define, if you take one of your customer persona, how do you define the webinars that you should do for that personas? And is it only you know, one or do you make several and you think about the whole marketing funnel? Because I know you are come from that field, so I'm sure you have a lot of things you can share about that. Yes. So now I can you know, nerd out. I mean, if you think about the content journey from awareness to opportunity to decision to customer We have content tailored to every single cycle of that journey. And so we are doing multiple webinars in-house produced as well as external through third parties every single month. And so we have at least five lanes of content that we have to continuously produce or reproduce, like you reuse content every month. In our industry, it is a thousand percent about thought leadership and education. What we have found is when we can educate the market and provide best practices, we get about 90% attendance rate for the people who register and sign up. And 70% of those actually stay through the entire duration of the webinar. And I think this is also about bringing other industry best practices into another field. I mean, when you're in MarTech, like everything's flashy, just new, flashy, flashy, flashy. And And that was the first thing that I realized coming into water. It's like all of these webinars are academic based and (laughs) there's no fun. There's no engage engagement. There's no personalization. So what we try to do is add some personality and some interaction to the content, if you will, that is also very important, impactful and helpful, if that makes sense. That makes total sense. I still would like to add a follow up question that is try to make the webinars like super engaging by being different, basically being fun, being not academic, basically. <laughs> Do you have a specific example, for example, how you choose the webinar 
topics. Yeah. So this is back to putting the customer at the center. We listen. Like, what kind of topics are top of mind? So I think if we think about like macro level, what's happening in water and what are we experts to talk about? Of course, we are all over in the United States what's happening with the infrastructure bill and the lead and copper rule, PFAS. So again, we will we'll make sure that we have a macro content, if you will, around just educating our customer base on what's happening legislatively, how that's going to impact their life from a compliance standpoint. So we can kind of control the drumbeat of that. But then we not only ask our customers, but we also use data, right? So we take a look at all of our campaigns and we say, what's the highest uh, downloaded content on our website Uh, through digital, through anecdotal feedback from customers? We scout Twitter, right? Like what, what are the Twitter topics? When we go to conferences, we'll kind of aggregate that feedback. So again, it's just, um, I wish I had a silver bullet other than just a lot of listening and then putting those into big themes that we think are going to resonate with the market and the customers. It's very good. Scanning Twitter is something I didn't think about yet. So it, it's a rabbit hole though. I sometimes I have to, I yeah. just, I get into <laughs> kicks and my husband's like, ah, will you get off that? I'm like, I can't. It's just so good. <laughs> yes. Don't let hearing no or a lot of no's discourage you from building your business. Yeah, yeah. I, I just, we couldn't, I mean, like, just blatantly, we couldn't raise our first round of funding. I mean, l- the amount of no's, you know, not a fit, you're a marketer, not a founder, just flat out no, right? And so I, I think it's just, you know, a lesson of you're going to, you know, as a founder, if you think you have a great idea, and especially one that, that gives you so much purpose that you can't think about doing anything else, you're going to hear no's. So how do you take those objections and turn them into yeses, if that makes sense? So like, for example, one of the things when we were raising money, everyone just kept saying, we just don't, this water industry, just really don't know a lot about it. Not really sure if you're the person to actually start a company in water. And so one of the things we did is we'd heard about this pitch competition that Steve Case, who is an entrepreneur, Um, that founded AOL has done, he basically put together this seed fund called Rise of the Rest. And he would go to different communities that are generally notorious for it's hard to raise a capital because in the United States, like 80% of all the capital goes to New York, Boston, and California, right? And I think it's maybe like 85. And so he actually came to Indianapolis and we applied and we were actually one of the top 10 that got to pitch. And then we actually won that leg of the pitch competition. And after we won that and proved that this was a business worth investing in, we closed our round within the week. And so, again, I think it's we were on the verge of not actually having the business. We found an opportunity to legitimize it. And luckily, we were good enough to <laughs> to actually turn the no into yes. And then I think that goes with also customers and turning customers into advocates as well, right? Especially in our industry, they are slow to adopt. They're not going to adopt anything that's not proven. And so they're just naturally going to say no. I mean, I literally had a a customer now tell me, year one, I cannot buy you until I see you at this trade show three years in a row. Like, I just won't. I need to know that you're going to be here three years from now. And so being patient and persistent... (laughs) And knowing that no now might be a yes later. Being, like I would say, tenacious, but uh, resilient as a founder is definitely something. <laughs> Talking about the beginning, uh, actually, you said your first idea might not be your best idea, and that's okay. The first concept behind 120 Water was business to consumer. 
B2C and that failed, but we were listening to the market and found a way to pivot. So can you explain a bit about how you went from this testing kits for B2C customers and what happened and how you decided to switch to B2B? Yeah. So I, you know, as I alluded to, I think earlier, 120 Water came together very fast, right? Once we were able to figure out the bits and pieces of the business, executing and getting it to market was actually, it, it happened very fast. I think what we missed is that, you know, chatter, especially social chatter around this issue didn't also didn't really equate to buying power, if that makes sense. Like we launched the kits and I've never seen so much like social engagement around. I want to get my water tested. I want to get my water tested. But when it would go to actually purchase the kit, like, I mean, no one would actually convert into a paying customer. I mean, we had some, but I mean, nothing that we could actually build a business on. And so... As we were launching the company, I just got personally passionate about the industry. And so I just started to immerse myself in, well, what are the drinking water regulations in the United States? How is lead regulated? And why do Flint, why did the situation in Flint happen? Just to know, to give it some more context to that, how far were you in the investment on that time? Were you already using at the beginning of the first round? You still have some, you know, some cash flow for a while or... That's a great question. So we raised a total of 135000 and I had probably gone through seventy-five to 100000 of that. So we're like $35,000 left in the bank, right? And we're like, we can invest this and really try to make the B2C work. Or as I was doing my research and just listening and seeing all of the Google alerts coming into my inbox and, and around... Uh, so-and-so school finds lead in their drinking water, now has to test every tap. Ohio now mandates annual lead and copper rule testing. Pittsburgh Water and Sewer Authority exceeds action level, now has to test every year. I'm thinking like these are net new testing programs that didn't exist a year ago. And I feel like we might have an opportunity, right, to help them. And so I went back to my business partner's and we again, we had, let's say, $20,000 in the bank. And I said, I'd like to take a chunk of this money and I'd like to go try to prove out the, the B2B model side of it and see if we could sell these kits to these facilities and water systems that now have to test more. And sure enough, we spent a little bit of money on pay-per-click and got a daycare in Georgia. We got a daycare in Ohio. We got two school systems in Indiana that wanted to run these programs. And then as we started running these programs, I started asking them, well, you know, do you have asset plans for your water fixtures? Because it'd be great if I could just plug onto those and use that data. And they didn't have any data of where they were testing. And so I kind of looked for some off the shelf stuff to say what, because at this time we were using paper. And when you go into a school system, on average, there are at least 40 to 50 fixtures per facility. And if you're doing 10 facilities, that's a lot of data to maintain. So that's how the the notion of let's build some lightweight software came into play because everywhere I would go, they would have no database of record for us to port this water quality data into. So we actually prototyped just a very simple piece of software that combined asset management for your fixtures, uh, water sample kits and lab analysis data. And then a very lightweight dashboard. So in real time, you could track, here's where you are in the program process, here are the results, and here are the communication letters that you needed to send out. 
And I, I then went back to my, after we got probably five paying customers in that segment, I went back to my partners and I said, we have $5,000. Yes. With a product at that time, when you said like you had five paying customers that were agreeing on the promise of developing the product or you had already kind of already prototyped the new product to give, give no, their hands? No, on the promise, on, on the promise. And, and we were satisfying that promise using off the shelf analytics tools, right? Like we were giving them a login to their data. And so to them, you know, we were fulfilling on it. But for us as technologists, we knew we were just cobbling together off the shelf open source stuff. So we were like, I think we can actually make this software, right? And then put some more workflow and, and analytics and logic behind it. So yeah, long story short, once we had some of those proof of concepts, we actually took $5,000 that we had left in the bank, went to a water tech technology conference, actually sold two additional licenses to the platform and one state. And that really became the funding event because that state contract is worth a couple million dollars for us. Something that is missing in the picture for me here and probably for the people listening to at that time, what was the team like? And that's probably like the questions behind that is who did you partner with when you started as a co-founder and maybe as a first employee until you reached that point right now that you just described? How did the team evolve? Because you were coming, as you said, from marketing to arrive to that point where you are to like already be able to be a little bit techy to show that to people or even to, to build the testing kits, for example. Yeah. So back to the founding, just bringing the kits to life. I was a new entrant in, in water, took basic chemistry as a student, but certainly wasn't an expert. And so we brought in a co-founder who actually owned a number of environmental testing labs across the East Coast. So Early on, really, the team was this person who owned the labs and did a lot of water quality programs on behalf of the industry. And then... Did um, you know that person? Um, his name is Dave Cole. And did you know him before? I did not. My other co-founder who I had worked with, he was kind of a mentor of mine decades ago, knew him as well. Because when we said, we think this is a great idea, but where do we go for the water quality side? He's like, hey, one of my best friends growing up owns some labs. So literally, that's how the team was assembled. Like, we have this idea, but we don't have this expert. And so anyway, that was how it all came together. But in terms of, like, how did we build the box and all of that? I mean, that was just, again, finding good partners, right? So, I mean, I could certainly bring in the creative and the marketing and the back end side to it. But it was just kind of finding good 3PL partners and, and whatnot that could help us kind of bring together that first product to life. And then to your point, once once we started to go the B2B route, I was a lot more, having that been my background, situationally aware of, well, first person I need to hire is a salesperson, right? Um, in addition to myself and then a jack of all trades. So again, I was, as we were growing, able to kind of identify a little bit more like what are just kind of some skill sets that we need to hire if we're going to go after this different audience, if that makes sense. So so when we first got our big contract, we were a team of um, five. Thank you for clarifying the picture. I think that you made a very smart move by hiring that person. So this is also something that you would also probably advise like entrepreneurs, non-tech entrepreneurs, if they want to found something which is pretty techy in your case, to basically find the, the correct person that has a tech background as a co-founder because that person was basically opening the doors also to you to all the technology and the, and also in terms of credibility, I guess, to with the investors. Yeah, a thousand percent. We actually, though, I mean, this is a good 
it's a good topic to bring up because we did weigh, do we outsource or do we find that individual? And um, yeah, it was really important to me that person joined the team and join the team as a co-founder and not outsource it. Because I mean, I do know, I mean, I have other entrepreneur friends who they outsource all of their tech and their early tech and their product. And that's one way to do it. But for us, it was important that we had that expertise in-house. Especially you could basically take care of the marketing. So you could actually say, let's have at least, you know, the tech side of this is where I need the most input and like workforce on my side to help you with, with this. Talking about marketing, it wasn't really an advice. I don't know if it was an advice or if you finished with that, when you said brand, 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 build a great brand, people want to buy. That's a fantastic advice, but most of the people will tell me, how do you build a brand that people want to buy? So here as a marketer, I'm super interested to hear what you have to say. I kind of threw that one in because back to thinking about all of the markers like do's and don'ts. And one of the things we really focused on early on was brand. And brand is more than just, do you have pretty iconography? We invested in a very visual brand, but we did so like purposefully, right? We're like, well, you know, what is going to be approachable, right? What is going to be approachable and making sure that our iconography our messaging was all approachable and how we talk about it, but that's just one piece of it, right? How you look is one piece of it. How you act is another, right? And so I think, you know, for us, we built a brand and it was costly where, I mean, we would spend money on making sure that even if we didn't have the money, we traveled to the shows and people put a face to the brand and every single person that they met from 120 felt like they belonged in the same company. Does that make sense? And like little things like we in our industry, people don't really think about the swag that they give at the conferences. And we give Lego sets, right? We give like Lego sets of wastewater treatment plants and we give um, badass women of water stickers. So I think it's let our work speak for ourselves because we do good work and hire us for our work, but know that we're going to give you an as-a-service experience, right? Because we want you to be a customer for the lifetime that you can be a customer. And we also want you to interact with all of our other customers. So I think brand is a, a lot more than just the iconography. It's honestly how, as a company, you want to behave and, and how you want to approach the market, how you want to interact with your customers, how what you want to give your customers. And then obviously, at the end of the day, make sure you provide exceptional service. What I find fantastic is the Lego set idea. I mean, I agree with the, the whole brand and that I don't know who said that, but I always remember that we say the way you define brand is basically what people remember of or can say about you when you're not in the room or can say about the company. And that's what exactly what you said. So everything you do is not, it's not only the icons or logo or the colors, it's how you communicate, how you make people feel in general, how you treat your customers. That's part of the brand experience. And the way you manage to grow your company so quickly, for me, is a real sign that you're building a strong, strong brand, which is, which also people understand the value of brand. In terms of marketing, if we can take a side note here, I'm pretty sure, even though I didn't check it completely, like fully, but how much are you spending, or let's say not in revenue, not in uh, cost expenses, but in terms of percentage, maybe on like videos or marketing campaigns that are raising awareness about the brand and not directly performance marketing driven. Because I see a lot of founders, a lot of companies who only focus on performance marketing and bottom of the funnel thing. And then they are surprised that this is very costly for them. 
And what I try to explain sometimes to people or when I mentor to clients is that the stronger brand you build, there are sometimes awareness activities and campaigns you're going to do that you won't be able to measure. It's maybe in terms of reach, but not in terms of ROI, but that will actually help you convert and uh, sell more expensive services. So do, do you have some examples of these campaigns that I'm just trying to guess, you're going to tell me are completely wrong, uh, but that you actually like campaigns that you're using to raise awareness? Yeah, brand. absolutely. I mean, back to those Lego kits, those are not cheap. Those are actually very expensive. And we expected zero ROI from those Imme immediately, right? But we knew a couple things. One, a lot of people go to these conferences and they have children and they have or they have grandchildren. And I'm sorry, but your grandchildren and children don't want you to go away for a week and come back with a pen. Or You know, a lot of the people that we deal with that we direct mail those to are engineers and they love what they do and they like working with their hands. And like we did, that's an example of a campaign where we did not expect any ROI in the immediate term. And it was all about brand and it was all about showing that we just think you deserve this. We think you deserve this and we think this is cool. So we think you should think this is cool. So we have an entire sticker campaign and it's really cool to see what happens on Twitter with these. Because about once or twice a year, we will release new stickers and and everyone will kind of DM, how can I get my hands on this? Or my water bottle just <laughs> broke. I need another one. And it's just a, a good, a good example of just like, how can you be kind of fun and creative and create a little buzz about nothing? And these are actually an example of a really cheap, you know, way to kind of let your brand go viral. But we don't expect ROI from this, but we expect everybody to have one of these on their devices, if you will. So I, I, could, I could go on lots of other examples, but we went to a conference and rented out like the Mercedes-Benz uh, stadium or like a lounge area just to kind of throw a little bit of a happy hour and, and whatnot. And again, I think there you are networking and you're expecting a little bit more interaction and business to get done. But we just try to create community around kind of every campaign that, that we do, if that makes sense. We also have just one other thing. And I don't want anybody to steal this, but we do also have this around the water cooler concept for people who are at a certain stage or customers where, again, we kind of share some cool tidbits and allow them to interact a little bit more as well. So how do we create a community around the campaigns that we do? To go back to the stickers, what I really like, I'll share it on the notes as well, uh, but it says badass woman in the water, so in the water industry. And what I like about this too is, I don't know if you know the podcast from uh, Louis Grenier, um, Everybody Hates Marketers, Stand the Fuck Out. And uh, I had a masterclass with him as well. And uh, Paul, I forgot his name, but anyway, where, you know, as a brand, if you want to build a brand, you have to take some edges to actually dare to voice your brand. And here by saying that, you're obviously from my own point of view, taking some risk by just, you know, going into the feminism side and just supporting women. And lots of people are telling you, yeah, But you know, as a brand, we can't take risk. We can't take that side. But I think that actually the, the brands who stick out, who stand out, are the ones that actually dare to do that. So kudos for that. And for the Legos, I think it's brilliant because as you said, I'm sure it's expensive, but I'm sure people five years from now, or even though they, they might not even be a customer from now, or they might have still the Lego on their desk or on uh, that they brought back uh, at the university or at work, or their kid is playing with it, and then they will think about your brand at that time. So... And it's interesting about that too, even down to our kits, because we send these out all the time. These are actually 
you know, what we use. But I hear all the time from our customers, I didn't want to throw this away. This is just sitting on my shelf. You know what I mean? Because I think water people love anything water related and it's pretty. Um, yeah, it's like, so you are showing me also for the audience to know that I just listening to it, showing me a kit, like you made it in a very beautiful box and not uh, uh, like that's beautifully branded as well and not that you can actually leave on your cupboard. This is great. Thank you very much for all these advice. I'm having a, a blast just talking with you today. So thank you for that. Probably because we talk a lot about marketing and I love that too. Let's go to the, the questions I usually ask my guests. So what is the best advice you've been given as an entrepreneur? been given a lot of advice. I think the best advice I've been given, though, is honestly enjoy enjoy the journey. And that might be personal to me because I tend to go, go, go and don't look back. But I do think it's once you actually have a company that is scaling and you actually have something, it's pretty a remarkable and incredible journey. And so taking the time to enjoy it, celebrate it and find that time to to celebrate it. And, and don't be so humble, right? <laughs> Brag. <laughs> Very good. Which book would you recommend entrepreneurs? What is one of the last books you've read? I'm reading this right now, actually, <laughs> which is called We the Possibility, Harnessing Public Entrepreneurship to Solve Our Most Urgent Problems by Michael Weiss. For someone in kind of the um, sustainability government sector, it's actually really interesting. But obviously, I mean, I think everyone, every entrepreneur should read the hard things about hard things. It's on my to-do lists. I thought about it this week, too. I was like, oh, because sometimes I've, I have very, very tough decisions to take, too. And I'm like, I need to read that book. So thank you for that. The drop I needed to just jump and say, like, to make the water flow and say, no, OK, I'm going to order it now. What is the training or podcast, blog, influencers to recommend entrepreneurs to follow? I do a lot of, yeah, absolutely. I do a lot of podcasts. Some are just listening to, to founding stories. So Jason Calican, oh, I always butcher his last name, but This Week in Startups in Silicon Valley, Jason Calicanicus. I even love like, it, you know, the NPR, how they built this. I, I enjoy listening to other entrepreneurial stories. Yeah, I'm just a big fan of podcasts in general. Business Insider always gives me some tips about what's happening here in the U.S. <laughs> And then the last question is, tell us one thing about you that I wouldn't be able to find out online. So I'll, yeah, I'll give you kind of maybe an embarrassed, it's not really embarrassing, I'm actually proud of it, but I actually, I was actually kind of a theater minor in college. So I played Peter Pan in my kind of childhood playhouse growing up, and that's still my mom's claim to fame of me. Megan, thank you very much for your time. Before we leave, it's your time now. Do you have any ask? Uh, where can people find you? Are you hiring? Are you looking for investment? Anything you want to share with the audience? This is your time. Sure. I am very easy to find on social. My handle is Megan C. Glover, M-E-G-A-N. C is in cat, Glover, G-L-O-V-E-R. We are hiring in virtually every area, marketing, sales, product engineering. So if uh, someone wants to join a mission-driven company focused on building solutions for water, please, please, please let me know. And that can go to info at 120water.com. Thank you again for your time. I wish you a wonderful weekend and talk to you soon, maybe at a conference. I would love that. I'm ready to get out of here. <laughs> Thank you so much. If you like this episode, you can share it with your friends because sharing is caring. And you can give it a five star on Apple podcast because this really helps to make it more visible to other entrepreneurs working on a better future like you. 
If you are busy and might not have the time to listen to all episodes of this podcast, just a little tip. Sign up for my newsletter on gtimpact.com. You will receive the summary of advice from each episode and you will get personal recommendations on which episode you should focus on depending on your current challenges, your industry and your startup stage. Thank you very much and see you next week for the next episode. Have a nice day.